First Peter chapter 4, we'll be reading verses 12 through 19. And I was thinking, of course, about this uh, idea of warning labels and about the pastoral advisory that I've put out for the last few weeks during Lent of the content of the sermons and how um, often in the New Testament you've got these warnings that are laid out and uh, not just warnings that are laid out, but you've got some pretty uncomfortable passages to read through and uh, some, of, some whole books that are uncomfortable. We looked last week at Jude, and I was struck this week as I was reading through 1 Peter and 2 Peter that 2 Peter sounds an awful lot like Jude. There's a lot of, a lot of the same images, a lot of the same allusions uh, from the Old Testament, um, a lot of the same phrases, word for word, similar phrases, and it was fascinating. But one of the things that Peter says in his second New Testament epistle is he says that there are times in our lives where we're in need of reminders. And I thought, well, you know, that's, those are warning labels. That's, that's what a warning label is. It's, it's a, a reminder in case you forgot. Do not hair dry your hair while you're showering. It's not good. It's not going to end well. Um, you know, some, some warning labels are a little bit more serious, uh, than others, a little bit more, uh, some a little bit more, uh, violent in their warnings than others, but, uh, there are times in life where we need to be reminded of, of things that we ought to take, you know, we just take for granted. There are times where we need to be reminded to brush our teeth and, you know, wash our hair when we're showering and things like that. But um, uh, it was neat how Peter phrased that, that there are times in, in our lives where we need to be reminded. Um, this morning here in First Peter chapter 4, we read the word of our Lord, and it says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the, fire, the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and the Spirit of God rests upon you. On their part He is blasphemed, but on your part He is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment, to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will, it be? What will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now if the righteous one is scarcely saved... Where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. Let us breathe a word of prayer, that prayer together. Father, we pray that You would bless the reading of Your Word to our hearts, to our minds, to our lives, to our very selves. We pray that you would make us hearers as well as doers of your word. And we pray that you would help us to hear clearly what you have for us. We pray in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. 
the contents of this morning's message may be difficult to hear because this morning, as you might have guessed by the text this uh, just now and as well as some of the text that we've had read for us earlier in the service, we're looking this morning at the subject of suffering. And suffering is a difficult subject because suffering is experienced by all. It is our common lot. Everyone hurts. Everybody hurts. Suffering, it seems so frustrating that it is inevitable for all. So inevitable that C.S. Lewis wrote a treatise on it called The Problem of Pain. He saw that pain and suffering, heartache and loss, is a troublesome subject when we're talking especially about a God who can do all things and a God who is so filled with love that He overflows. Well, why doesn't He do something? That's really kind of been the problem of the church for 2,000 years now. It's been the most hotly debated and the most vigorously discussed issue that the church in its apologetic or its defending of its faith has dealt with. It's nothing new. You know, we hear of Christopher Hitchens and and others who make huge names for themselves and and have a lot of critique for the Christian faith. Uh, And we see great uh, apologists rising up. Like um, uh, we've got a couple here in in Atlanta, Ravi Zacharias and uh, William Lane Craig. And they do a wonderful job of defending the faith against attacks. But typically those attacks are related to this idea of suffering and pain and the fact that it's experienced by all. It's inevitable that we're going to hurt. We're going to know what loss is. We're going to know what disappointment is. To make matters worse, it was promised to the church, specifically to the disciples, by Jesus. On the last night that He spent with them, we call it Maundy Thursday. Mandate. Latin, Maundy, means mandate. A new command or a new mandate I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. And he talked to them about love. He talked to them about the Holy Spirit who's going to come and indwell their hearts by faith and lead and guide them into all truth. But he told them also, you're going to be rejected and you're going to suffer. You're going to be cast out of the synagogues. You're going to be hated and despised because they hated and despised me. And a cross awaits me. Don't think you're going to get off the hook without your own fair share of suffering. And so the church should not be surprised by suffering. Peter says it it, it shouldn't catch you off guard. You knew it was coming. Fiery trials. Pain and heartache. It was anticipated by the apostles throughout the New Testament letters that the body would hurt. The body would be injured, the body would be assaulted, and the body would experience pain and suffering. You know, there are some benefits to suffering. Quite frankly, suffering makes us more like Christ. The man of sorrows. What a name. When we hurt and suffer, we are in some measure 
sharing in the afflictions of Christ, as Paul said, filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ, which ought to blow our minds. That's one of those passages that ought to shock us. What is lacking in the afflictions of Christ, filling up in my flesh, he said. But not only does suffering make us more like Christ, it also exposes our need. It it reminds us of how vulnerable we are. It reminds us of how dependent we are, how prone to hurt we are. We are ultimately dependent upon God, but we are also dependent upon one another. Someone's in need. Someone's hurting. Someone's experiencing pain or discomfort. And we depend upon God and we depend upon our brothers and sisters in Christ because our needs are exposed in suffering. And that's a good thing. It is not a good thing to hide one's hurt. When you hide a toothache from your parents, it begins to get worse and it festers and it becomes a major problem. And we think of Toothaches is kind of silly and lighthearted, but some of you have had some major dental work and you know they're not silly or lighthearted at all. They're horrible. But all suffering in life, if we have no one to help bear it, if we don't acknowledge our need and we don't share that need with someone else, typically we find ourselves being debilitated because of it. And so there are some benefits. Pain, uh, C.S. Lewis said in, in uh, the, the, the problem of pain, pain is God's megaphone, as it were, to rouse a deaf world. Something's wrong. Something has to be done. And so, yes, there are some benefits to suffering, but there are also a variety of kinds of suffering. You know, we think of natural Suffering, suffering that is natural to living in this world. We have discomforts. We have pain written large. Hurts. Death. And loss. Most poignant being the loss that we endure in the shadows of death. But among these natural sufferings, you've got physical sufferings, you've got emotional sufferings, you've got financial sufferings. We live in a diverse world, a world filled with a variety of problems and therefore a variety of hurts and a variety of heartaches and a variety of types of suffering. And that's just in the natural world, just living a human life in the world that we have. Beyond that, we've also got relational suffering. That's when we, we are enduring pain or suffering or heartache, discomfort that's been afflicted by persons. Sometimes family hurts. Sometimes it's friends that betray us or let us down. Sometimes our enemies That's an obvious one. Sometimes spouses. 
Sometimes the, this relational suffering is actually inflicted upon ourselves by ourselves. Almost a, um, a subcategory of this relational suffering is what Peter says here. Christian suffering. The scriptures speak to us of bearing the cross. In fact, Jesus said, if any one of you wishes to be my disciples, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross, and then let him follow me. We think of the Christian life not as something that's just happy-go-lucky and where everything works out and the sky is always blue and the grass is always green, but the Christian life is filled with suffering. It is filled with the bearing of one's cross. Bearing the cross is not just mere discomfort. You know, we, we tend to trivialize the cross by saying, you know, it's just my cross to bear. And we're talking about, you know, getting sunburned easy in the summer. That's just my cross to bear. That's not what the cross is. You know? Christian suffering is suffering for the name of Christ. And it is known around the world. It is known deeply and painfully around the world. You see, the cross is about rejection. Not being rejected by getting sunburned easily. It is about being, it is about rejection, it is about being rejected, it is about judgment. Having the finger pointed at you, being exposed, being called out and shamed. It is about abandonment. In large part, Christ was by Himself. Left alone, so many had abandoned Him. Some remained, but those faithful were few. Christian suffering is bearing the cross. It's about that term persecution. We use that term and we typically think of it as you know, the church global, the church around the world, persecution in the Middle East, and perse- persecution in Asia, persecution specifically in Southeast Asia. And we think of persecution going on in the Congo and different parts of Africa and maybe even some parts of, of uh, Central and South America. But persecution is something that is known by the whole church. And it doesn't do us any good to belittle minor suffering for the sake of major suffering. You know, we typically live with a sense of, of shame that you know, we, our suffering is nothing like the suffering of Christians in Iraq. Our suffering is nothing like the suffering of Christians in Sudan. But that doesn't negate our suffering. It does us no good and it does the church around the world no good 
to think of suffering only in, in, a, in a, a scheme of degrees where only the really, really bad suffering is what we ought to care about. We ought to care about all suffering. And so here we're not talking about just minor discomfort. We're not talking about just inconvenience. We're not talking about just the pain that is our lot in life. We're talking about rejection for the sake of Jesus. All suffering is suffering and all rejection is rejection. Peter says we ought not to find ourselves suffering and certainly then we ought not to be complaining about the suffering that we're enduring because of self-inflicted suffering, because of being a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a busybody. But if we're given the honor, he says, to suffer for the name of Jesus, then we ought to consider that an honor because we're partaking in the glory of Jesus. It's, it's fascinating to see in the Gospels, especially in John's account of the Gospel, as Jesus is approaching the cross, he continually is referring to glory. Glory. Time for the Son of Man to be glorified. And what he's talking about is the cross. When the Son of Man would be lifted up and would draw all peoples to Himself. It is in the cross that Christ finds His glory. It is in the cross that the, that the Father's heart is born on this earth. Peter says that we ought not think it strange when fiery trials come our way. As though something unusual is happening to us. Something out of character for the Christian life is happening to us. The Christian life, if the Christian life is about bearing one's cross and, and suffering for the name of Jesus, then the Christian life can be spoken of as being conformed to the image of the cross. It's in theological terms called the cruciform life. A life that is that is Bearing the weight of the cross, uh, uh, the life that is bearing the image of the one who suffered and bled and died on the cross. How should we respond to this suffering? Living this cross-bearing life, living this cruciform life, I think it's important for us to remember that we have an opportunity in suffering for the name of Christ. As the church, we are afforded the opportunity of absorbing the world's poison. That may sound like a foreign idea to us because we sounds bad. It sounds painful. But the church is given the opportunity as the church suffers to absorb the world's poison. To take the poison and the hatred, the rejection, the anger, the wrath, the vengefulness, the scoffing and the mockery of the world into ourselves. 
and defeat it. Jesus told his disciples, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. And you know what happens when a wolf gets a hold of a little sheep. The blood of the lamb ends up in the mouth of the wolf. It was one of the church fathers, Tertullian, the father of Latin theology, who said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Suffering is not fun. Pain is not something that we typically look forward to in life. But sharing in the sufferings of Christ and bearing the rejection of the world for the sake of Christ, we actually have an opportunity to offer the world Maybe you would think of it as an outlet. And an opportunity to get some of that hate out. To get some of that poison out of the system. This is, the scriptures don't call us to some sadistic masochistic joy in suffering that the church ought to have. It tells us that suffering is inevitable. It tells us that you're going to be rejected. It's going to happen. And it tells us that you can find joy even in that because you can offer the world the opportunity for healing. Peter says... Let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him. How in doing good as to a faithful Creator. I think it's fascinating that he brings up that image of God as the Creator when he's talking about suffering. Because we think of that those images kind of being detached from, from one another. You know, God the Creator is God way on back, maybe 6,000 years or you know, however far back we want to go. And we think of God as Creator back then. And when we're dealing with suffering, we think maybe of God as Redeemer or Healer or Comforter maybe. But He says that we are to do good works. Lifting up our souls to Him as our Creator. The One who made this world is the one who can redeem it. The one who gave us this life is the one that can put our lives together and can make sense of our suffering. We ought to absorb the world's poison. In a more cheerful note, we ought to enjoy life. We ought to laugh and smile. We have reason to rejoice. Not everything is pain and suffering. 
Certainly we have some reasons to laugh. Certainly we have some calls to smile. The church of all people in the world ought to be the most joyous and life-filled people on the planet. The Martians ought to want to come and invade our place to figure out what kind of joy we have. And what's the source of it? Oh, welcome on into church. As long as they're not gross and creepy looking. We ought to rejoice in God. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, several times he, he mentions joy or rejoicing. And you know the passage, rejoice again, I will say it, rejoice. And the neat thing is that Philippians, while it's a very uplifting letter, it talks about an awful lot of suffering and discomfort and loss and abandonment. Paul says, I know what it is to be on top of the world and I know what it is to be down in the pit of the valley. I know what it is to have plenty and an abundance and I know what it is to not have a single thing. Just the fact that we're alive ought to give us reason to celebrate. And our celebrating ought to be in God. He is our joy and He is our song. One of the fascinating things about the, the early martyrs in the church is that they, many of them would sing hymns while being burned at the stake. And that sounds horrendous. But their hearts were filled with joy even in their sorrows, even in their pain, even in death. I remember uh, the final words of John Wesley dying on his deathbed, surrounded by loved ones. And he said, the greatest there is, is God with us. That's called rejoicing. Enjoying life, even in its last breath. Responding to Christian suffering, we ought to intercede for others. But we should be careful that we're not interceding for self. It's easy to bemoan Christian suffering and really have the interest of self at stake. But when we decry Christian persecution, when we cry out for the sake of the church, it ought to be for the sake of others. It is others that ought to be the focus of our concern. Our concern, not, and not just others on the other side of the globe. Yes, we ought to cry out for them. Yes, we ought to intercede to God in their behalf. And we ought to intercede, whether it be to governments or whether it be to whatever powers this earth holds over them. We ought to cry out and intercede for them. But we ought to also look for the help of our 
fellow man here. We ought to look out for one another. The Christian life ought to be characterized not by self-defense, but by the defense of others. Peter says the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And then he says, after all, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? It's quoting the book of Proverbs. Time has come. And it begins with the church. It calls it the house of God. You'll notice in your bulletins, I've uh, titled this sermon, The House of the Risen Sun. A little allusion to one of my favorite songs as a kid from the animal. I, I wasn't a kid when it came out, obviously. But uh, I really enjoyed hearing that song with that deep, deep, raspy voice. The animals, House of the Rising Sun. He says suffering and judgment begins with the church, the house of God. And he weaves into this the tapestry of this text in suffering, the glorification of God. He weaves into there the glory of the resurrected life. For as we are being conformed to the image of Christ, we are being conformed to the image of the one who suffered for our sakes and the one who also rose again and raised us up with himself, as the New Testament declares. And so as the house of the risen Son, we are called to suffer in anticipation of the resurrection. Because it is only sometimes in our suffering that the world is afforded the hope of redemption. When we take into ourselves the the hate and the rejection of the world so that the world might taste the blood of a lamb. Will we walk as people who find joy in the life that has been given to them? Will our joy be in God? And will we bear one another as we intercede for them? While suffering... And pain and sorrow is certainly part of our lot in life. The lot of the church is to suffer and endure pain and sorrow redemptively 
for the sake of the world. We should suffer well. Let's pray.